0: This episode of The Weeds is brought to you by Squarespace. Start building a website today at squarespace.com. Enter offer code WEEDS at checkout to get 10% off. This week's episode of The Weeds is brought to you by Harry's Razors. Go to harrys.com and enter promo code WEEDS for $5
1: off your first order. The following podcast contains explicit language. I saw a tweet last night it just said Marco Polo, and I yeah. thought that was very good. That was <laughs> pretty good. Because his polls were loud.
0: Hello, welcome to another episode of the Weeds Vox's Policy Podcast on the Panoply Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias. With me, as always, my colleague Sarah Cliff, Ezra Klein. Hello.
2: Hi.
0: It's a beautiful spring day in Washington D.C. It C. is weird. It's going to be 81 degrees today. Yes, it's going to skip from. It's a beautiful spring day right now, but soon it'll be a dystopian like summer afternoon. It's a hot <gasps>
2: day for hot takes.
0: <laughs> yes. And the hottest takes of all have to do with total factor of productivity.
1: That's a true fact yes we are getting back into our more weedsy roots here and going completely off not just the election but the primaries politics in general and talking about something i've become a little bit obsessed with which is as matt put it so eloquently total factor productivity uh the 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 bigger debate here the one you may have heard of because it has occasioned a number of pretty interesting books and op-eds and increasingly academic papers is this question of whether technological innovation is accelerating or slowing down or remaining stagnant. So a couple of years ago, Tyler Cohen, the economist, brought out a book called The Great Stagnation, which argued for the idea that we were slowing down in the number of significant technological innovations we made. Robert Gordon, who's an economist at Northwestern, has brought out a, a much longer book, like much, 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 much longer, but, but very good, called The Rise and Fall of American Growth on this topic. The part of it I find really interesting, though, is a collision that that these arguments are having with Silicon Valley. The basic shape of the river here is that we measure productivity in the economy. We measure how much more the same number of workers are able to get done. And if you look at our productivity numbers, they have been sagging for some time. They're lower than they were in the post-World War II period by quite a bit. They're also lower than they were for a sort of limited period blip from like 1990-something, ninety five, roughly? Yeah, like nineteen ninety five to two thousand four yeah, is definitely. one way of and then thinking. it's gone down again. And if you look at the difference in productivity between ninety five and two thousand four and then 2004 and 2016, you're looking conservatively at a loss of $2.7 trillion in the economy. So these are big numbers. It is really important for jobs, for wages, for everything we think about when we worry about how the economy is doing, that we are becoming more productive. Now, what I think is interesting is that one way of responding to this data would be to look and say, oh, here, we have a huge problem. But that has not actually been the response in a lot of quarters, particularly out of Silicon Valley. There has been a widespread denial of this data, an argument that this is clearly incorrect, that just look around you, look at your cell phone, look at your computer, look at the processing power we have, look at how much the world feels like it has changed. There is something not wrong with the economy. There is something wrong with the data, that somehow our productivity numbers are simply not picking up these tremendous advances in, in productivity we're having, that... You just can't look around and look at how the internet pervades all things now and not see that we're in a very different place than we were 10 years ago. And I mentioned this book by Robert Gordon. I think this book is really, really good. And it's all about how the inventions of the 20th century, how they diffused through the economy, how much... They actually drove in terms of economic growth. And you know, Gordon is a really well-known economist. He's done a lot of work on productivity. It's a very good book. But you can see the other side of it. I did for my other podcast, The Ezra Klein Show, which you should all go subscribe to immediately. I did an interview with Bill Gates. And Gates is someone who really lives on the frontier of technology, not just did he invent a lot of the sort of core technologies that, that, that we use today and, and sort of the core business models behind them. But he also, through his foundation and just through his work, is really involved in advances in material science, advances in health, advances in energy. He's funding a lot of this basic research. And he thinks Gordon's thesis is garbage. He said that that book will be remembered like the sort of piece in our time book that, was, that came out right before World War II. And I don't think I found Gates' argument as very convincing, but he may be right. But either way, he really feels it. I think that's just one of the interesting dimensions of this debate, that the, the people who are really involved in technology right now and, – and Gates is a very smart person who understands economics very well – they they cannot believe this because it feels so wrong. And so I think one thing you're, you're left with here when you're trying to extrapolate forward is are we in a position where some of the smartest people who understand the advances are making the best – are fooling themselves about their importance or are we in a position where they are seeing things that are going to be huge deals five or 10 years from now and huge economic deals 15 or 20 years from now. So I've been working on a longer article on this and doing a lot of reporting around it. I want to be honest in, in this episode of the weeds my i've not finished my reporting and so my opinions on this are not fully formed it's possible that what i say today will be the opposite of what i end up concluding in my article but right now i am leaning pretty hard towards the economist side i think having spoken to you know some of the silicon valley folks and then like really looked at these numbers I think the productivity numbers are not great, but then they've never been great. And and I don't think there's a good reason to believe they've suddenly become worse in the age of the Internet. But, Matt, I know you've looked at this data, too, so I'd be curious for your take. Well, so I, I always think that one
0: source of misunderstanding here – is just that I think economists have this concept that they call total factor productivity, right? Because they're Uh, great at naming things. Well, but (laughs) actually, I think it's fine as long as they stick with this terrible name, because total factor productivity sounds like a technical economics term. And if someone were to say to you, here is some opinions I have formed from my academic research about total factor productivity, you would say, you know what, this academic (laughs) expert Maybe he knows something about that. I have no opinion. (laughs) But what they've tended to do is when they're trying to explain to a mass public, what does total factor productivity mean, they will say, well, it means technology. And they sometimes have research that equates it this way. They have a couple hazy empirical papers linking total factor productivity to things like patents, things like that. So they feel licensed to run around saying technology, technology, technology. But technology is a word in the English language that I think everyone is very comfortable with, but oftentimes is meant in the modern day to specifically mean computers, right? So like, if somebody says, well, I've got a job in the technology industry, we take it for granted that that means he does not work manufacturing refrigerators. He doesn't work manufacturing cars. He doesn't work making airplane wings more aerodynamic, right? I work in the technology industry, means I do something with computers. And if you say to someone, well, I feel like progress in the field of computers has slowed down, they're going to say, that's insane, right? Because it's it's false. Progress in the field of computers has clearly continued to be very, very, very robust at the same time that total factor productivity has slowed down. So the the disjunction, I think, in part is just like about that slippage, right? That all of this incredible progress in the field of computers and the internet has simply not led to an enormous increase in the efficiency with which Americans do economic output. That's the real disagreement here. And it's it's uh, Robert Solo in the 80s, I think, identified this. And it's called the, the Solo Paradox. And he said, the computer revolution is visible everywhere except in the productivity statistics. So I think that is like a very good thing to talk about. Like, Why is it that? It used to be that no offices in America had computers and the internet. And now they all do. So it Seems like people felt like this was important business equipment that they should invest in, but there's very little evidence that it's helped anyone produce anything, which I think is fascinating. But then just like a different thing entirely is like you will have like technology entrepreneurs who don't understand what productivity means, ranting and raving that economists are being stupid while economists run around using the word technology to refer to a technical productivity Concept and like, I, I think there's like a lot of a lot of misleading debate, but that like solo question I think remains a, a very good one.
2: So as a human who works in an office with many computers, so many, <laughs> many computers. so many, com- and more
1: monitors and
2: more, mo- yeah. There's a lot of monitors. There's phones. There's all sorts of screens. I'm, like, not shocked at all that, like, the rise of computers and the rise of all these, like, productivity apps is, like, not making the staff of Vox.com as well as the rest of the economy more productive. So, like, I think about the things that might get conflated with productivity, I think, are... um, Things that increase efficiencies. So we talk about things like Uber or like Yelp or like being able to order a lot of things on demand or like we have Slack now at our office, which we, <laughs> which we could have. All I got episode.
0: some feelings. It's intriguing and I think yeah. telling that the number one hottest. Yeah. Enterprise Productivity Software Company is literally called Slack.
2: <laughs> right, exactly. So, so we have all these things that make it easier to like do the things that all of us like to do. So I can get a car much easier, and I like I use a bank on my phone. But they also open up so much space for distraction. There is so much in my computer that lets me do things that are not work when I'm at work. So like Slack, for example, a productivity app is like a great venue to find like gifs or like links to stories or like things to do <laughs> that are definitely not work. So I think I kind of agree with Matt's point that like I think there's a bit of confusion about what this means and all this like computing power that we have, all the ability we have to research our stories faster and presumably report a story faster than I could have reported it. Twenty years ago, get matched by all these resources to like literally do anything that is not reporting a story.
1: (laughs) So let me try to pull this back a little bit into why I think this debate is consequential. Because I think first I agree with everything Sarah said, and Matt, your precision on this is really important. But but I think the precision there can obscure a little bit of why this is something we're thinking about and why, because I don't think we said this clearly, if total factor productivity is going down, that's a very bad thing long run for the economy. It really, It really does matter. So let me make two points. One is that you talked about the solo paradox, the the fact that in the 80s, he said, computers are everywhere, but they, they don't appear to be in our economic data. But then in the 90s and early 2000s, we actually did have a really big rise in productivity. And a lot of people think that was driven, at least to some degree, by information technology diffusing through the workplace and workplaces learning how to use it better. I mean, I really do think that Google has made me as a journalist just tremendously more efficient. But we're talking about how much this grows every single year. Mm-hmm. and so. Once that stuff is baked into the cake, then you actually need to come up with equivalently large innovations in order to keep productivity growing that quickly. I don't think anything that has happened since Google became a real thing with the internet has increased my productivity as much as Google did. Facebook has, if anything, taken away from it slightly. <laughs> then I think there is another set of questions which are are, are important and, and get to something interesting. I think that's more broad in our economy, which is what are we trying to measure? There's one argument here that I think is an argument you hear from from Silicon Valley types like Varian and Mark Andreessen, which is that the productivity measurement is simply wrong, that it's getting at the correct thing. It's getting at the efficiency of the economy, but but it's incorrect and we shouldn't think about it. And, And we should be looking how to make the productivity measurement better. There's another argument that I think you can completely make, which is that the product-to-be measurement is perfectly fine. It just isn't getting at what we want to get at. That, a thought experiment I've been using on this is let's say that next year Oculus VR comes out with a perfect VR headset. It's $200. You get not just sort of sound and visuals, but you can feel things. And we sort of enter, I don't know if you guys have read this book, but the Ready Player One universe where everybody just sort of like sits in their VR machine all of the time. That is a world in which, at least within our hypothetical here, people could be much happier, right? They could all be living their very best life, seeing the people they love in their ideal form, et cetera, et cetera. But it would totally destroy global productivity, because what you would need to lure someone to not be in their cheap VR headset would just be so tremendous that a lot of work would stop getting done. So one version of this is that we need to be measuring some kind of happiness, some sort of broader life satisfaction measure. But there too, and and I think this is actually important, something I don't see get discussed in this conversation very often, if you look at how Americans feel about the world in this age of tremendously increasing screen technology basically – they don't seem a lot happier. I mean, they're not rising levels of happiness reported in polls. People think the country is on the wrong track. They think their children are going to be worse off than they are. So I think that one version of this argument, a version that I would be interested in, is that, yeah, productivity isn't increasing for for some of the reasons Sarah said, and, and so on. But that's not the point. Like, Look at how much time we spend on our phones, on our computers. This is making us happier, and that's what we want. But I think that if you look at What people say about how they feel about their life, about how they feel about the trajectory of the world, about how they feel about the world their children are going to inherit, you do not see the kind of techno-optimism that that would imply.
0: Yeah, I, I think that this is an interesting sort of point because sometimes I think that people are vastly understating the sort of benefits of these communications technologies that I think about like my dad can get on FaceTime and like video chat with his grandson. And, like, that's really, really cool, you know, and, like, an enormous privilege. And, like, honestly, like, what is more important than being able to, like, maintain, like, deep, meaningful connections with the people who are closest to us? That, like, I remember my mom, you know, like, her best friend lived in in Pennsylvania. And, you know, they would, like, talk on the phone sometimes. But it was, A, difficult to arrange those phone calls, and, B,
1: until the late 90s, moderately expensive. Yeah, my father's parents and my family was in Brazil and called calling Brazil so he could speak to his parents was a big deal and you couldn't do it much.
0: Right. So you would say, okay, in a lot of ways, this is like the most profound found short of maybe like curing chronic illnesses. Like this is like the most profound problem. Are we like finding human connection? And, and technology is helping us solve this. So that, that feels very true to me personally. And then you look at the aggregates though, and people seem more disconnected than before, that they are simultaneously, people move less than they used to, but are also more socially isolated. Than they used to be and so it seems like the kind of social indicators that you would want from this right like people aren't forging closer ties with people and they also aren't having larger horizons and like going and and doing more stuff and it it seems like when you look at it like yet another way in which we have a growth in inequality in the United States, that there is a group of people who um, are like me and are also like the people who work in the in the media and in the technology industries who are really sort of benefiting from these kinds of things and are really excited about being able to get like Bon Me delivered on, on your phone <laughs> and text with grandpa in, in California. And that then there's like another America that is simply having the fabric of its communities pulled further and further and further apart in a way that is not resolved by like opening more doors.
2: But I don't even know if like, you know, you look at like the technological media elite and like it's a general benefit. So like you said, you know, there's this ability to connect with people easier, but then there's also this kind of like pervasive like isolation And disconnection. You see this in an office now too. Like, even in our one huge difference I've noticed, and like, I'm 31, I've only worked in offices for about a decade, but people used to talk to each other in offices. (laughs) And now everyone has their headphones on and you're typing on your computers. That's like, Fine, but there's less of a sense of getting to know the people around you. So I don't even know if like if we open if everyone felt like they were like enjoying the full benefits, they could pay for like really good data plans and internet, and they were using the things we think are great about technology. If they would actually consider it a net benefit, and a lot of this is really big sweeping implications. It's not just people getting a little sadder. There's a huge body of research on the connections between loneliness and chronic disease and Mm -hmm. showing like, not just with depression, but with actual physical ailments, that there's a lot of connections between isolation, loneliness, and chronic diseases. So it really matters if technology is changing our lives in that way. So it's hard for me to see. And it's kind of like a double. Sided thing, like the things that allow us to connect with people, Facebook, whatever, also the things that are allowing for a decent amount of isolation. So I think there's two sides to it, even for people who are really enjoying the benefits. I think a
1: double-sided point is super important because to go to that issue of social isolation, you gave one example here, which is that even within our own office, we speak to each other much less because we communicate constantly on Slack. But take the, the broader version of that, which is that It seems less costly in terms of communication and in terms of connection to move away from the city in which you grew up. You're not asking, oh, well, I could move to New York from Southern California. But if I do that, I'm not going to be able to speak to my family just about ever. I'm very rarely going to be able to see them now. You can sort of tell yourself, oh, we can talk all the time. We can email. It's easy to grab a flight. And so it makes it much easier to make the decision to go. But then you actually are gone, and those things don't make up for the fact that that you're not near your family. I mean, my family's in Southern California. I feel that very distinctly. Similarly, even with Slack, it makes it much easier for us to say, okay, great, we're going to let people work remotely. You know, we're based in D.C., but we have employees in New York, in California, in Seattle, and a bunch of different places. And Slack definitely helps make that possible. But it also helps create a it makes it easier for us to justify an office where people don't really get to see each other that often. And and those sort of remote working cultures they have their upsides and and they certainly they have their downsides. I also want to pick up on a point you made a couple minutes ago, Matt, which is I had a conversation with the venture capitalist Peter Thiel uh, recently about about this topic, and he's a really smart thinker on this, and he's very much on the side of. Technology has not done what we think. Um, he's got this line that he that, that's become very famous, which is we were promised flying cars, and instead we got 140 characters. <laughs> and something Teal said, which is a flip of a, of an argument you made, is that it is evidence of how far we've fallen. That technology has come to mean computers. That it is that that was not how it used to be. When you talked about technology, when you talked about science fiction, you know, in the fifties, you were talking about cars and airplanes and medicine and screens and all kinds of different things living off of this planet all these different things whereas now the fact that we have a thing we call the technology sector and that thing is a information technology sector that we sort of know what we mean when we say people work in it To him, that is evidence of the way our kind of horizons here have narrowed. And to him, that is evidence that we have become less ambitious in terms of what we are going to achieve with transportation, in terms of what we are going to achieve with energy, in terms of what we are going to achieve with space flight. I was asking him, what would convince him that we are not in a technological slowdown? What would convince him that the productivity numbers were wrong? And we really were seeing the kinds of fundamental advances in technology that we saw in the 20th century. And he said, if we began moving people faster and if we began living longer. And I actually thought that was a pretty interesting point. So part of this argument is that in the 20th century, it's easy to forget now, but we made these tremendous changes in how we lived. We got electricity. We got toilets airplanes, cars, I mean, these things that are absolutely the fabric of our life now, air conditioning, that diffused during a fairly compressed period of 40 or 50 years. It's really what Robert Gordon's book is about. And as big as the information technology revolution is, it isn't the same as that tremendous set of technologies, electrification next to cars, next to airplanes. And that on a lot of those fundamental technologies, particularly energy and and transportation and medicine, it really seems that progress has slowed down in, in big ways. We're not living longer. We're not moving any faster. Not and just it, slowed down. Is...
2: It's reversed a little bit. We actually see some lifespans shrinking, right. which is really worrisome. But, but yeah.
1: this is where I think
0: Theo gets things like both right and totally wrong, which is that he, he's correct that these are the indicators we should be looking to. But the reason we're not moving faster isn't that the technology of moving people hasn't improved. And the reason we're not living longer isn't that the technology of medicine and public health hasn't improved. It's that we've applied a sort of intellectually and morally bankrupt Peter Thiel style libertarian ideology to our public policies, right? That the cars construed as vehicles that we produce today are much, much, much better than the cars that existed in the 1960s. Uh, They move slower because we don't have congestion pricing on our roads. The trains that exist today are much faster than the trains that existed in the 1960s. And you can go in Japan and ride on them. The technology exists. We just don't have it in the United States because when it was proposed that we should build those trains, people said it was better to have taxes below, which is, fine, but like you're not going to with low taxes build trains because it's a public good, right? And like public health is the same way. We know a lot about how we could get people to live longer lives, but it would require, you know, you'd have to say like, you know, you can't sell people Fritos. And like if you couldn't do that people would all be better off. And I think there's a lot of evidence that we would be much happier without the freedom to eat Fritos, right? That like my life is like an endless hell because there's (laughs) M&Ms available in the kitchen. And like I eat the M&Ms. Eating the M&Ms does not make me feel better about myself. It makes me feel worse about myself. And like I'm not yet living with the long-term health consequences of those M&Ms, which will make me feel much worse about myself. And like everybody knows, right? Like there's no possible dispute that if you could not sell M&Ms, we would all be far better off, right? And nobody would miss it because you'd be like, "Man, remember when there were M and M's everywhere?" People were like, "Yeah, it kind of made us <laughs> fat, right?" This is why I'm sad Michael Bloomberg isn't running for president. Um, all is to say, these problems like they have solutions, like known solutions that have been developed in laboratories, and we are not applying them. And we can argue about why we're not applying them or if it would be a good idea to apply them, but it's not a it's not a lack of technology that's preventing us from taking the maglev
1: to New York tomorrow. Like that technology exists. I think that there's a good point there. I'm not sure I fully agree though that, that we should totally let the technology off of the hook. So you were talking about how would we we can make people healthier by imposing aggressive nanny state-like controls on consumption, and that is completely true. That said, we are really at a point where the number of new drug molecules that are being discovered has gone way down. And that isn't because we do not have a sufficiently rewarding... Policy equilibrium to make drug companies rich. Drug companies are plenty fucking rich. We're not really sure why, but it's become harder for drug companies to discover new molecules. Similarly, we have a, a real reduction in the number of effective antibiotics we're discovering. Again, we could, I think, definitely have better policy towards antibiotics, both to discourage overuse, like maybe we shouldn't give it to every fucking farm animal in the country, but also to to discourage to encourage. But I'm saying the discovery.
0: outcomes, right? The out. He he correctly specified an outcomes-based measurement. If we were moving faster and we were living longer. The point is we don't need to accelerate the pace of drug discovery to get people to live longer. We need to write sensible laws.
1: Because he's not here to to make his argument. I think the point he's making is about his view is that we have seen a slowdown in the things we're discovering that could do that. I think your view that we could have very different public policies to diffuse discoveries we've already made is, is true. But I'm not sure that changes the fact that we have not invented an airplane that goes much faster, to my knowledge.
0: Uh, yes. Well, I mean, although that's interesting, too, right? I mean, the fastest passenger airplane ever invented was invented, I think, in the 70s. Um, and we don't fly it anymore.
1: Right, the Concord. Uh, right, because it turns out people, people didn't want to pay. Well, also then one blew up. Did one? So yeah, the the if I'm not misremembering this, the mixture of it being very expensive but also one blowing up was bad. <laughs> yes, but I mean at any rate, in a day to day
0: sense, right? Most people were not going to go to Paris, whether it takes five hours or takes three hours, and it turns out people wouldn't, wouldn't pay that much. I think we would pay, like most people would pay, to speed up their daily commute to work. <laughs> Yeah. Right, like you just like you literally can't. But the technology for it exists perfectly well. Like if you live in Stockholm, you can pay to speed up your daily commute, and people do, and their commutes are faster, and their road fatalities are lower, and you know their lifespans in general are much longer there. And Although you no, could no, not, not to, only yeah. did the
1: Cong- I'm sorry, not only did the yeah. Concorde crash, there is video of it on the no, internet. Oh, well. That is terrifying. I do not want to watch that. We will not sorry. be playing that
0: audio. Technology has progressed though. If this was like a radio <laughs> show back in the day, and I was saying ignorant stuff about the Concord. We would never be able to find out.
2: But I mean, I guess you do see some evidence of people getting around faster. If you look at all these, you know, like Uber, let me get here in 20 minutes this morning, whereas figuring out the bus schedule, waiting for the bus, all of that would have taken longer. It's not necessarily um, the Uber car is faster, but that we've developed a way to meet me where I want to get it. I think there's some evidence of moving faster. It's not fast planes.
1: Let me flip this to a different part of the optimistic argument which is, and and this goes to the Uber point, it goes to the Maglev point. Some, I think, folks would argue that when you look at past periods of technological advancement, the gains in productivity, the economic gains, they don't come when you think they're going to come. They, they happen later as things diffuse. So it took a while after computers became common for us to really see the economy figure out how to use computers to increase output. And you know, in the last five or 10 or 15 years, a bunch of important things have been invented or sort of are on the cusp of being invented. Certainly, you'll hear people talk about the way that machine learning is really coming into its own, and that's going to eventually, people think, lead to AI or some, some version of AI. Uber and things like Uber are Instacart and all these all these different processes are a fairly young kind of company. Venture capitalist Chris Dixon has this term for this called full stack startups. We're building these companies now where instead of using software to attack just one very narrow part of an industry, we are building whole new companies based on the software, and that's allowing them to revolutionize operations much faster. And that's what you see in something like Uber. Taxi Magic, which was an Uber competitor that was just giving existing taxis the ability to get hailed by a smartphone, totally failed. It was Uber building a new kind of ride-calling business on top of its software advantage that has really, really changed the game. And so, you know, one argument, and this one is a little bit harder to parse because predictions are hard, especially about the future, but is that we the intuition that a lot of people who live a little bit on the edge of technology right now because they're richer, because they're people who enjoy living on the edge of technology, whatever, their perception that technology has done some amazing things is correct. And 10 years from now, we're going to be looking at some really big productivity gains as those technologies get diffused and we figure out how to use them in broader ways through the economy. Again, I have no way to evaluate whether that's true, but but maybe it is. I, I do think one thing people who who believe that
0: ought to think a, a little harder about it in policy terms is that I, I think a lot of these technologies are solving problems that are specific to a certain kind of urban lifestyle. There are a very diverse array of restaurants around in Washington, DC. So when you improve delivery, you like vastly improve the set of things that might come to your house. Uber, you know, you were talking, Sarah was talking about how like she got to work faster because of Uber, but like normal people just drive to work. So Uber doesn't help at all with that. A lot of these companies are in San Francisco or they're in New York and a lot of journalists are in New York or DC or maybe San Francisco. And it's like a really big deal in in that set of things. And I think that It could be a really, really big deal for the world because there are... In one level, we're reshaping what kinds of environments people can and should live in. Suburbanization seemed like a really good idea at a certain technological paradigm. And on one level, information technology, by letting us sort through the complexity of a very dense landscape, is making density better and is making congestion less bad. And so like Hong Kong gets more and more attractive as you get better ways to sort of sift through the, the plethora of things that, that exist in that city. But But there were also important structural policy obstacles to this. When Detroit was the technological center of the universe, its population, Doubled in ten years, and then it doubled again ten years after that. San Francisco is not experiencing that; it's experiencing an incredible surge in rents because you cannot, you're not allowed to build out big coastal cities, you know, at, at the same pace that that you used to be. And, and I think, I mean, that will be a more ideologically friendly argument to a lot of technology people that it's bad policy in the sense of overregulation, and instead of. Under regulation, but still, I, I think you you get the point where the technology sphere, if you're interested not in the technology but in the outcomes on people's lives, that it's really mediated through a policy zone, right? I mean, if we had invented cars but insisted on not paving the roads we would not say that was an important technological development. We'd say like, well, it made farms a little better because we could sort of roam around, but actually a horse is more practical for, for a lot of purposes. <laughs> um, but it was like, we built the infrastructure to use it. And like, we built maglev trains, and now, now we just don't use them. And, and I think in a way, you will see that for Instacart and for Uber. Like, are we going to build the places where that kind of technology is useful? Or are most people going to continue to live in the suburbs of Nashville, in which case like, who cares?
2: Well, and another thing I'm wary of on that argument is like, well, what are people doing with all this time that they're saving? So, you know, to bring it back to where we started, a discussion of productivity and lost GDP. they are listening to podcasts. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> all, all of you are the, no, no, you're, you're great. You're not the problem. You shouldn't be doing work right now. But, you know, in all seriousness, we we have all these ways to kind of save time that I guess we could be working or we could be doing... Other sorts of things, so I, I don't know if the efficiency is translating if the idea is that these tools we are developing as they become more dispersed will let people do things with more ease, they'll have to commit less time to um finding a taxi or finding a restaurant or whatever it is they're doing or you know I think another big example might be Amazon, and that would affect you know people not in large urban areas where you could get things from a store that would be a lot harder to get if you were in the suburbs of wherever online shopping basically lets you shop at any store, even if you don't live near it. I don't know what people are doing with, like, the two hours they would have spent driving to that store. And I'm kind of skeptical that it's, like, something that's productive and, like— and maybe, you know, it's, like, derping around on Facebook or whatever. <laughs> right. Right? Like, well, it's they're... something that they don't even enjoy. But,
1: but something I think is important in the argument about the mismeasurement thesis, and that and relates to, to that point as well, is a lot of this stuff has always been true. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it's always been true that you can make the argument about air conditioning or dishwashers or washing machines that, oh, it's just going to give you more time to fuck around at home or it's just going to make it easier to stay inside and not go and do work or the car is going to make it easier for you to like leave work during the day and go hang out with your your friends. And and all this, I think, has always been true. And it I don't mean that in a dismissive way. It literally is true. I mean, I think that we have always created these – innovations, and people have never simply and, and straightforwardly used them to increase their toil level. And hopefully they wouldn't, right? That would be that would be a bad world to live in. I think the question that people have to ask is whether this is getting more or less true with new innovations. Chad Syverson is an economist at the University of Chicago, and he just a couple weeks ago released a paper I think is pretty devastating on the mismeasurement argument, just sort of goes through it very rigorously and carefully and, and basically shows that Even if you take the most optimistic set of assumptions you possibly can, that the IT sector, that mismeasurement in general, you have to get to numbers of mismeasurement that just don't make any sense within the context of the sectors or the activities you're looking at. Even once you filter in and account for the amount of time people are spending on these devices. I think this has been a really helpful thing for me in thinking about not just this issue, but, but a lot of other issues. Because when you're trying to disprove something, it's always sort of easy to be like, well, the data is bad. And it's often true. The data is often bad. But when you're dealing with long-run data, sets, so the question is, has the data gotten worse for some reason? Is there is there some way in which... We are suddenly not able to pick up the importance of these things. The telephone, similarly, right? The telephone, I think we all believe to be a, just a game-changing invention. But what do people do on the telephone, right? They call their friends. They call their family. They like get calls from telemarketers. There's some amount of telephone work that is extremely productivity-enhancing. And then there's also a lot where, well, you could be reading a book, but instead you're sitting there watching two-and-a-half men with your partner who lives in another city. And that stuff i think is part of why the productivity measurement has been good because we pick up the part of it that we can but in general It has generally been true that these innovations don't just make us better cogs in the grand working machine, but they also give us better things to do and make us a little bit happier. And I think that's true for the internet. I think it both makes us more efficient and in other ways makes us less efficient, but gives us stuff to do. I definitely look at my phone a lot. I'm not sure it makes me happier, but then I'm not sure that a lot of these inventions have made me happier, right? I think that human beings are not all that good at living their happiest life, and I'm no exception. But I I am not certain that the internet is qualitatively different in this respect. Certainly when you look at something like fucking TV – Right Which is what it's taking a lot of time away from
0: well, and I think one thing that, that you see time and again in, in this debate is that we don't have a great way of thinking about advances in the realm of entertainment, right that the The other night I was home alone, like the the baby was asleep, my wife was at her book club, so I watched Spotlight that I got on iTunes because it was a movie that I wanted to see and, and I had missed out uh, earlier in theaters, and that was a a minor technological marvel, right? I mean, 10 years earlier, I would have been watching, choosing from 80 channels on cable. Uh, 10 years before that, I would have been choosing between maybe 40 channels on cable. Before that, I would have been choosing between three channels on, on over the air. And it's like, if tomorrow I came home and I had no Netflix, no iTunes, no cable, nothing but like rabbit ears and three (laughs) channels to watch, I'd be really pissed off, right? (laughs) But I don't think that people living in the 60s and 70s experienced it that way. To them, they had color television, which was so much better than the black and white TVs or the radio. And the most important thing was that because those were the only shows to watch, you could watch the shows that people were watching. Like to me, one important reason to be able to see Spotlight from the comfort of my living room is that it won Best Picture and it's about journalism. So lots of people who I encounter Want to say things about this movie, and I wanted to be able to participate in that. But proliferation of entertainments, well, it's it's neat. Like the uh, music streaming services are amazing, and if you could tell high school Matt that like you would never again need to like save your pennies to buy up an album, I'd be like, that's the greatest thing of all time. But now that I have it, I don't feel like it's all that great. Like I'm not going to give it up, but it doesn't make me feel more in command of the musical universe than I felt when I was 16. Right. It's like it, the way society actually works is just different from the technologies. And and they've created this like this rat race of, of viewing.
2: I mean, I think that just speaks to like the trade off of like everything. And I think you're right. This isn't just true for new things, but also old inventions as well. But um, that there's just kind of an inherent trade off between happiness and sadness. Like one of the ones I've kind of thought about um, is like Amazon. So I buy like a ton of things on Amazon like I buy my I buy 40 pound bags of dog food which is great because I don't have to go to the store but when I do go to the store because I need something like you know in the next hour sometimes I like run into people I know and then I talk to them and then we have a conversation and we make plans for later I
1: think that's the worst part about going to the store
2: well well you're recognizable (laughs) so I don't know what happens I didn't mean it like that (laughs) just like
1: seeing people I know at the store and I'm like Oh, yeah. Good to see you, but but I don't want to talk.
2: But sometimes there's like, I don't know. So, okay. I'm I'm
1: on on Team Sarah.
2: Okay. See, so at least Matt wants to go out and be. But you wrote your article about like having your baby and how nice it was that people talk to you and like with everything, like with the music, there was something like special about like waiting for like the song you wanted to come on the radio and like recording it onto another tape and then like you finally had it. And whatever that like euphoric feeling is, like I don't know where you get that anymore. But you do have the euphoria of like literally having every song you could possibly want available.
1: Yeah, and then you get this terrible paradox of choice. Uh, a strain of research this discussion reminds me of a little bit is around wine. So there is really good research. We've actually replicated some of it at Vox.com. There's a great video uh, we did. About how people, when blindfolded, cannot tell the difference between expensive and cheap wines. And this kind of research has been replicated again and again and again. They've done it with experts. They've done it with laymen. Uh, you, wine, it is just bullshit. Like you just people don't know. And you know, the fifty dollars and the twenty dollar bottles are don't don't change. But what is really, I think, the interesting flip of it, is that doesn't mean you don't enjoy a $50 bottle more than a $20 bottle. The act of having purchased an expensive bottle of wine, of focusing on it, of really wanting to like it, that has a very real effect on your enjoyment. It has an effect on how much you sit there trying to detect nuances and complexities. I don't really like wine, so I, I'm, I'm sort of, I'm sort of trying to describe this thing I've just read about at this, this point. This is
2: like a person who's heard of wine. Yeah, like it's it's an alien wine.
1: to have heard of wine. But I think that's true in in a lot of entertainment. Mm-hmm. So I spend a lot of time now staring at my Netflix home screen and just clicking through it because I'm so paralyzed by the idea that there's something I could be watching that is better than whatever garbage (laughs) I've, like, initially decided I should be watching. That there's something that feels worse about watching Brooklyn Nine-Nine when you could be watching all of the Oscar best shorts. I think that's, like – probably a fairly pervasive feeling now. I mean, as you say about music, you know, you used to save up and you bought the CD and then you really listened to the CD. Whereas now every week Spotify gives me my Discover playlist. And what I do, because it is so costless, is I just like sit there for 20 minutes and I like listen to each song. And if I don't like it, I turn it in the first 15 seconds or first 20 seconds. And I'm just like drilling through to try to find if there are three or four songs on there I really like. And... You know, I do find songs I really like and it helps me go through more music more quickly. Would I be happier if I had more scarcity in my music and forced myself to actually learn and sit down with new things and appreciate them in a different way? I think probably. I can't seem to make myself do it, but I in no way am am confident that I found the correct equilibrium.
0: All right, <laughs> up, up up next, I think we we're, we're going to talk about talk about Donald Trump. Get get back you guys do want to hear more about how I'm kind of upset about my music? Nah, not the place for it Ezra. We're done. We're done. They say good things come in threes, and this happens to be our friends at Harry's three-year anniversary as a business. So if you're new to Harry's, we've got a special deal for you to try three of their expertly crafted five-blade German razors, a handle, and shave cream for just 10 bucks. Harry's is just a great change from the kind of old days of buying razor blades that are so expensive that they keep them under lock and key at, at the drugstore. Instead, you get much cheaper, much more affordable razors, much more conveniently. They're just sent in the mail to your door. It, it's dead simple. These are high-quality German-engineered five-blade cartridges They give you a close, comfortable shave. There's no cuts. There's no burns. And the quality is fully guaranteed. You get a refund if you're not happy. The prices are super low. That's because the razors come to you factory direct. It cuts out the middleman, and you can get a blade for about half the price of the leading brand. It's really convenient. You know, you don't need to remember you're running out of razors. You don't need to go down to the store and track down the guy to get them out of the drawer for you. It's super simple. You know, you find what you need on the website really easily. They're going to show up. You can schedule a subscription, and you're going to be in great shape. So why pay $32 for an eight-pack of blades when you can get them for half the price at harrys.com? The Harry's Starter Set is a particularly amazing deal. For just $15, you get a razor, moisturizing shave cream, and three razor blades. Plus, Harry's will give you $5 off your first order with the promo code WEEDS. Go to harrys.com right now. That's H-A-R-R-Y-S.com and enter promo code WEEDS at checkout.
2: All right, so we are back to some Trump. He's coming out of a few um, primary wins this week. As and he always
1: seems to be now. As he
2: always seems to be. But we are not going to talk about the primaries. We are going to talk about policy because this is the weeds. And the policy we're going to talk about is Donald Trump's plan, quote... To make health reform great again. This is literally the name of Donald Trump's health policy proposal. Wait, it's not
1: make health care great again? No, it's
2: health care reform great again.
1: I, I never felt that was the problem.
2: <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. Well, so anyway, this is this is the plan that Donald Trump released last week. We've started calling it Trump care over at Vox. And so one of the interesting and kind of I don't know if it's surprising, we'll talk about if it's surprising things about Trump care is it. it turns out to look a lot like basically every other Republican repeal plan that we've seen so far. And one of the reasons I found that a little bit surprising is because Donald Trump has spent a lot of time in the debates and his stump speeches talking about how he was going to be different on health care. He talked about, you know, memorably in one debate, how his plan will not let people die in the streets, how everyone is going to have insurance. He really talked a lot about insurance coverage. He's previously supported a single-payer system, but up until last week, hadn't really put anything down on paper about what exactly Trump care would look like. And so it kind of set the stage where he could, as he has in a lot of other ways, really go away from where Republicans have been on this issue and like put out something that was really far from um, the Republican orthodoxy on the subject – but it turns out that he he didn't. He came up with a seven-point plan that um, is pretty boilerplate from a lot of the other Republican plans I've looked at. It has things like letting insurers sell across state lines, which is um, something Trump has talked about in the debates, lets people rely on health savings accounts, which are already a thing, but came up in the 2012 election. It, um, of course, repeals Obamacare. And then kind of the centerpiece of it is its insurance reforms, how it treats the people who buy their own insurance. And the big thing it does there is it repeals Obamacare. So it lets people who have pre-existing conditions, it lets insurance companies reject them. So there will be people who currently get Obamacare who, under the Trump plan, will possibly not be able to buy insurance anymore. It also lets insurance companies, if they want to sell to sick people, they can charge them more. This is um, a practice known as underwriting, where you kind of tether the premium to how much you expect someone to cost. So, you know, there is a line in the Trump plan where he basically says, you know, my plan is not going to let anyone fall through the cracks simply because they can't afford insurance. We must review basic options for Medicaid and, um, you know, ensure that those who want health care coverage can have it. But there's no, they're there. There are so many cracks. And I think it really speaks, and, you know, as I know you've written about this, To we're seeing a very big disconnect from the healthcare world that Trump has talked about envisioning in the debates and the thing that he decided to put down on paper last week.
1: Yeah, I think this is so fascinating. And I really want to emphasize something you said at the start there, Sarah, which is that. Trump made a lot of very clear comments where he said that he was going to go in a different direction from the other Republicans. So there there was this interview he gave to Scott Pelley on 60 Minutes, and he said to to Pelley that... He was going to say something un-Republican now. And he actually said that, un-Republican. And he said that everybody's got to be covered. And and he said that a lot of Republicans don't admit, but the bottom 25 percent of people, they can't pay for private insurance. But he's not going to let that happen. And so Scott Pelley says universal health care. And Trump says, yeah. And Scott Pelley says, yeah, but who will pay for that? And Trump says that the government will pay for it. So Trump didn't just speak of this in generalities, actually. He didn't just say, I'm not going to let people die in the streets or fall through the cracks. He very specifically said, I am not like other Republicans. I believe the government should pay for people to have health care. And he just lied. (laughs) There's no other way to put it. His plan does not do that. Something that that you wrote about in your article that I thought was a really sharp catch was – his primary approach to making and to subsidizing insurance is to make it deductible and make insurance premiums deductible. So what Obamacare does is it gives you basically a check. It gives you a tax credit to, to buy it. What a lot of the other Republican plan reform plans to do is to some degree or another, they have refundable tax credits, which means that the reason that's important is that if you are bottom 30 or 40 percent of the income distribution, you probably don't have either any in individual income tax liability at all or a very large one. So just having something deductible doesn't help you at all because there's nothing to deduct against. A refundable tax credit, you get the money no matter whether you have a liability. So a lot of the Republican plans use refundable tax credits to be a little bit more progressive. Trump's doesn't. His is more regressive. Does less to help the poor than you know, what a lot of his challengers on the right have done. I also want to say one thing about selling across state lines, because I'm not sure I can ever justify having a whole weeds on it. But there's almost no policy that people propose that pisses me off more than that one. <laughs> the idea of selling across state lines is that right now insurance coverage is regulated by states for the most part. So California says you know you have to cover this set of things. Oregon says you have to cover that set of things. Alabama has another. I think that is an intellectually consistent way of doing it, to say that, you know, I think these decisions about what insurers should have to put in their plans are best made at the state level that's closer to the people, fine, fair enough. Another intellectually consistent thing to do is to say it should be federally regulated, to say that we should have a bottom line that is true everywhere so that then you could have competition from insurers based anywhere in the country very easily. I think that makes total sense. The one that completely doesn't make any fucking sense at all is selling across (laughs) state lines. What you are doing there is you are saying that we should all end up having the insurance regulations decided by South Dakota. You are saying that whoever is the state – and this is, by the way, what's happening in credit cards. You're saying whichever state has the loosest insurance regulations should be be the state where insurers cluster and then use that insurance regulation equilibrium to sell to everyone else. And I do not have a vote in South Dakota. I have a vote federally and I have a vote in D.C. Or when I lived in California, I had a vote in California and a vote federally. But this idea that all insurance products in the country should effectively be regulated by whichever state gives the sweetest deal to the insurers, I just don't get it at all. Again, have it regulated by states, have it regulated by the feds. Either way, either of those are different and they work. But this across state lines thing, I just don't, so, I don't understand. A couple points on this. Well, one thing I,
0: I always think is interesting that people get into into high dudgeon about this this across state lines thing because as you what do say, you mean? no way. It, uh, as, as you say it, as you say it, it makes no sense. At the same time, we actually apply that system to a surprisingly broad range yeah. of important issues, right? So, for example, incorporation law is done at the state level. And obviously, corporations, as you've, you've probably noticed, operate in, in multiple states. And that is the reason why companies all incorporate in Delaware, is precisely because Delaware, where you don't get to vote, has the laxest, most capital-friendly incorporation laws. They kick some like minor fee to the Delaware state government for the right to incorporate. So you know, in Delaware, they're like living high on the hog on these fees, just ripping off hundreds of millions of Americans if not billions of people all around the world and nobody seems like slightly bothered by this or to feel it's even worth mentioning even though it's it's clearly much more significant so anyway i don't know i think maybe maybe someone should do something about that
2: um. <laughs> so one other thing to layer on state lines is that three states have actually tried this. Like, we actually have evidence of, like, letting yeah. this happen. Um, so it's Sabrina Corlett at Georgetown, I'll put this in show notes, she did a study in 2012 looking at um, Georgia, Maine, and Wyoming, which all enacted legislation, saying, like, yes, you, you you can sell your South Dakota plans here in Maine or Yeah, no wherever. one wants to sell
0: health insurance no in one Maine.
2: Wa- <laughs> no one wants to sell health insurance because it turns out, like, building a health insurance market is really hard. It's not the same as, like, incorporating in Delaware and, you know, right. having your credit cards, wherever you have to meet with doctors, you have to get hospitals, you have to compete with like the insurers that are probably, you know, holding near monopoly in the market you want to go into. So it's like both a policy with um very bizarre underpinnings and one that like, it's unclear if we opened up these markets. I mean, maybe you look at somewhere like a big market like California, maybe people would want to go in there, but it's also a really concentrated market. So you have to go up against like the behemoth of Kaiser Permanente and, you know, try and steal away their customers. So that's well, my, that's probably my a bad idea that is thing.
1: unlikely to do
0: very
1: philosophically.
0: It probably also depends on the level of the regulation, though, right? Like, my guess is that Wyoming and Georgia are, like, not the most, like, left-wing states in the union, right? Like, you could probably sure. come into New Jersey and actually undercut insurance plans by offering a, a lesser I, coverage suite. I, I, I mean, sorry. whether that's like a good idea or not for the for the universe is, <laughs> is a separate question. But to the extent that there is a meaningful policy to articulate here, right, what conservatives are saying is that liberals primarily, because it sounds good, have sort of gone stepwise over the years and been like, oh, you got to cover that. Oh, you got to cover that. You got to cover that. You got to cover that. And that each of these things sounds good because nobody wants to stand up in the state legislature. And, and when we say that,
1: we're saying acupuncture, right? Like that's
0: yeah. the sort of the massage. But
2: also things like autism, fertility yep. treatment, those are ones where you see a lot of variation. Right. So, so,
0: so whatever it is. But so it's like you keep ratcheting up what is like the minimum right. insurance benefits package. And at each step in the ratchet, it sounds like a good idea. You have a group of advocates who are like, this is an important problem. We, we need to address it. And legislators are like, yeah, you know fucking insurance because everyone hates insurance companies. <laughs> so it's easy to say, "Oh, well, the insurance company is going to have to cover fertility treatments." But what happens when you do that is that the premiums go up because all the insurance companies ha- have to cover it. I completely agree that the state lines idea does not make sense, but I do think the the policy critique that we could have more in affordable insurance, if we lowered the bar for what constitutes an acceptable minimum standard of health insurance, is real. And it would be constructive, I think, for the universe if Republicans said what they mean in like a squarer way. In particular, if we weren't in this constant loop of like, should we repeal Obamacare and replace it with something else, but we're instead just like Proposing ways to change Obamacare, then a thing Republicans would say is that Obamacare mandates more insurance than we think it should. And if we lowered that, we could have less government spending and less out-of- pocket spending. And then Democrats would say, yeah, but people wouldn't get as much coverage. And that would be like a healthy
1: I, I want to say I, I am I actually agree with this critique quite a bit. I think that we overregulate insurance. We cover too much. There were a group of, I think it was freshman Democratic senators, although though maybe I'm wrong about that, and, and they weren't freshmen, but uh, it was last year, maybe the year before, who brought out, and Sarah, you may remember this better than I do, brought out a plan for bringing down the floor in Obamacare plans. I think they called it copper plans. Mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure I wrote a piece on this, and we can put it in show notes, but they had you know a pretty distinct plan for how would you allow for more catastrophic care, how would you sort of bring down the level... Of Obamacare is, I think, if I remember this correctly, it mandates a somewhat higher level of coverage than the Massachusetts plans did. And I'm not sure that's actually necessary. You're
2: talking about two slightly different things. Like one is the benefit package and one is the cost sharing. So one is like what are the things you are actually covering, which is these copper plans would not touch. Yeah, you're right And there has been, you know, some Republicans have made the point that Matt makes about Obamacare has essential health benefits, which is 10 categories of things that Obamacare has to cover. And they've critiqued those as like too much regulation, too much health care. And I think that's, like, a debate you can actually have of, like, are these 10 categories ones that should be mandated?
1: But they gave a lot of power to the they states gave a lot... to define yes. what those categories yes. actually meant, right? Yes.
2: I mean, you could say gave power or, like, kind of booted the decision to <laughs> Totally states. threw
1: up their hands yeah, exactly. and walked away.
2: <laughs> <laughs> kind of like, yes. So you can debate on, like, whether that was something states wanted. So I think there's one debate on what things do we cover, and then another debate that the Copper Plans get into of, like, how generously do we cover them to
1: to take this back to donald trump for a second though something that i think is important about this moment in in trump's campaign and and one reason I, i wrote a bit about this this week on the site but i think that there has been a generalized resistance to seriously covering donald trump's policy proposals because i think it feels like a category error to people um in the piece i say it's like the dog making pancakes problem that that people have a tendency to, to cover the Trump campaign, like a dog making pancakes, like amazing. The dog is making pancakes. Like getting upset about how the pancakes taste seems pretty beside the point. But he's now the front runner for the Republican nomination. Like He really is very likely to win this thing and in, in a big way. Maybe he'll even win the presidency. And one thing that is interesting here is that he doesn't – all politicians spin and misdirect and exaggerate, right? They make what they're doing sound better than it probably really is. Donald Trump is a little bit unusual in repeatedly doing directional lying about his policy. So he will say, I am raising taxes on rich people and then have a policy that massively cuts taxes on rich people. He will say, I'm going to give everybody health care and unlike other Republicans, have the government pay for it. And actually he is adding tens of millions of people to the ranks of the uninsured and having the government pay for it even less than other Republicans are. That is not actually normal. Like most Republicans will say, I am cutting taxes on rich people and then they will cut taxes on rich people. And the way that they are misdirecting, if they're misdirecting, much like Democrats do, is exaggerating what the likely economic effects of their plan will be. I don't know how unusual One one point here. The other thing that's interesting here is I don't think we have a good idea of who is writing Donald Trump's policies. But I think what we know is that or or what a bunch of them tell us is that they are fairly standard, probably not the the policies are not very well written. So I don't think they're like top line conservative Mm -hmm. policy people. But it's fairly standard people who are drawing on a fairly standard set of ideas to come up with something. And it actually makes me think if I were a conservative looking at this, it would make me a little bit more confident because it make me think that, well, when it comes down to it, Donald Trump ends up hiring people who sort of just come out of the conservative movement, that they drive his processes in a more standard conservative direction that if he actually were the republican party nominee and then maybe a president he would be fairly likely to run a structure that would be recognizable to conservatives that would draw on traditional conservative institutions and ideas and would push his presidency in more standard conservative directions
0: yeah i mean uh,
1: to me what's remarkable about the
0: whole trump thing is the scope of the conservative freak out about Trump, when all indications are to me, A, he's less of a policy innovator than he says that he is, but also that past Republicans have been less orthodox than Republicans are currently remembering themselves to have been. Like I I read Jonathan Cohn had, had a piece today talking about Trump's health plan and other things. And he said, well, this leaves it that the only issue that Trump isn't orthodox on is trade. But Mitt Romney, who was the Republican nominee in the the misty winds of 2012, also ran on a platform of imposing punitive tariffs on China. I think maybe the difference was that people thought that Romney didn't mean it. When Trump did or or something like that, you do, you have to go like way, way, way back to George W. Bush to remember a, a Republican president who like said he was going to be a different kind of conservative, who was really going to take care of poor people, but who then sort of didn't in his budget plans. And you know a Trump's campaign guy, as far as we can tell, is this guy uh, Corey Lewandowski, who you know was the Americans for Prosperity state director in New Hampshire. New Hampshire is not a really big state. This guy is not, I think, like the top guy in the conservative movement, but is a totally regular conservative movement guy. Um, Stephen Moore uh, seems to be an enthusiastic Trump supporter. Um, mm-hmm. As Trump always tells you, Larry Kudlow loves his tax plan,
1: which is just like a uh, giant tax. has been talk deck. that he's talking to William. Betty it now
0: yeah and so it's Although like these
1: bigger advisors it's unclear what that relationship is I it is
0: like. but i mean you know all of these guys are in one way or another a, a little bit b-list you know a, a little bit people who need trump to like gain stature in the movement but it's not so different from like a a middle tier senator trying to Make a name for himself, and like you don't have necessarily like like all the the best people. Um, so the Trump campaign is super weird. I mean, you were saying like dog making pancakes, like oh, tons of things about it are really really strange. But he's unless you are a really really into neoconservative foreign policy thinking in its like nuanced ways, and it, he hasn't indicated real differences from past Republican Party leaders, which is what you would expect from the front runner in the Republican primary, <laughs> was that he would have kind of normal Republican ideas. But it's clear, I mean, we'd like don't have the right person at the table right here, like no leading conservative intellectuals <laughs> seem to share my view of this. But, <laughs> I, but like, I, and, and so I acknowledge that like, they would know better than me. But like, the policies are there,
2: right? I think the policies are there and, like, the people are not It's like, what's happening, right? So if I look at, like, Trump's make health reform great again, it basically looks like to me, like, some intern took some notes on some Republican healthcare yep. plans and, like, turned in this document and they put it on the internet and that was Donald Trump's healthcare plan. Politico did, Paul Demko at Politico did a great piece where he, like, tried to figure out, like, literally who is advising Trump on healthcare. So he, like, went and, like, scoured the conservative landscape and, like... Could not find a person like yeah. he's like asking all these Senate staffers like there, there's like a decent like there's a realm of people who do healthcare and presidential elections who yeah. are conservative like it's not like a giant universe and they're all telling him I don't know anyone who claims to have a clue he seems to be a one man shop absolutely never been asked by the Trump people <laughs> on policy you see him gravitating towards the ideas of the Republican Party by like looking at what the ideas are taking some notes in them putting them on his website. But then you don't actually see like the people who think about those ideas and maybe they follow, maybe they don't. I don't really know what happens there. He doesn't certainly, from what I can tell, doesn't have the buy-in of like leading conservative healthcare thinkers, you know, saying like, yeah, Donald Trump's like the man to like get our get our ideas done. It makes it slightly are- wonder
1: whether this is a bit of a worst of both worlds strategy for Trump, which is, on the one hand, he has scared the shit out of the Republican Party by everything he said. On the other hand, he has written <laughs> down on paper a bunch of things that are going to allow Democrats to, like, tear him apart, at least by the normal rules of politics in the general election. I mean, Trump's tax cut is just a hilarious joke of a tax cut. It would just give unbelievable amounts of money to rich people and he's put all that down on paper so on the 180s he's run around saying the thing that was maximally effective at turning the republican party off from him then he came out with policies that if he had just talked about those policies it would have been fine and now so on the 180s he's created divisions Republican party but on the other hand he's given democrats a lot of grist to try to pin him down if he makes it general election pivot right and i think the theory is trump is just going to come out of general election say the opposite stuff or 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 just be the more moderate version of himself but you know these policies will be down on paper they will be in every democratic attack ad you can possibly imagine right, I mean, a lot of people would lose out from them if
0: you're going to put yourself down for a 10 billion dollar tax cut trillion right, trillion right you would think you would want to get like the support of the club for growth but instead they're running ads hitting him even in the primary right like he loses affluent republican voters it's like what is the point of having such a like Pro rich people policy dynamic. If you're not even going to get like the votes and the money from from rich people, I mean, for Trump since he personally is very wealthy, he <laughs> sort of stands to benefit. But that only makes it even worse, right? right it's yes. like it's actually a really bad look in a way that's been obscured because no one in a Republican primary is going to say that the problem with Trump's tax plan is that it's even more regressive than Marco Rubio's tax plan. Like even Marco Rubio won't say that because it's I don't know. It's the dynamics of a primary, but like certainly Democrats are going to say,
1: "Yeah, it. Marco Rubio can't be like that." Tax plan is crazy, Donald. It gives a three million dollar <laughs> tax cut to the very richest Americans because <laughs> then somebody's going to point out, "Well, Marco, your tax it gives a multi hundred. It just doesn't make any sense." Again, it, they're directionally the same. Whereas Hillary Clinton would be like, "I think Donald Trump and I should pay higher taxes," and Donald Trump thinks that we should double the national debt. It would double the national debt. In order to give us a tax cut, it's going to be not good for him. But it's going to make health reform
2: great make health again. reform great again. I need it on a hat. If anyone, if anyone has that hat, I think we can hat. make that happen. For yeah, you, actually, I'm excited to wear that hat. All
0: right, so I think I think next up we're gonna we're gonna move to our move to our research. The we should week. make textbooks great again. Yes. This week's episode of The Weeds is brought to you by Squarespace. You know, Squarespace is just a great sort of service that helps you build websites. It's much easier to use than than the things that, you know, existed five or or 10 years ago. And you get a really sort of nice looking site. Your site will look professionally designed. And the reason it'll look professionally designed is that professionals at Squarespace will have designed the templates for you. So any kind of skill level you have, you're going to be able to make something that looks great. No coding is required. Uh, If you do know how to do a little HTML, or, or CSS or what have you, you can tweak it in, in any which way. But if not, you know you're just using sort of intuitive, what you see is what you get kind of tools. You, you know, you snap, you click, you drag, super super duper easy. And even better, if, if you're willing to make a, a full year sign-up commitment, you get a free domain name. You know, so that means like your own URL comes included in, in the price of the service. They do hosting, support, sort of you know everything you want, both to design and to maintain your website. So start your free trial today at squarespace.com. When you decide to sign up for Squarespace, make sure to use the offer code WEEDS and you'll get 10% off your first purchase. So I wanted to talk this week about about a paper that, that just came out on, on March 3rd that Thomas Kane at, at Brookings did um, that I thought was super interesting. And, and what he was basically doing was... Um, Taking the research methods that people have been applying to evaluate teachers, uh, which we know it's been a a very controversial process, but you can look at student test scores and do sort of appropriate mathematical controls, and you can say, you know, this teacher is is more effective than the average teacher, this teacher less so. And it turns out, you know, as I think you would expect if you kind of like tuned out the politics for a little bit, like some teachers are a lot more effective at teaching than other teachers because- that's how everything is in life. And so there's a lot of politics around this. Obviously, it's very controversial. Uh, anytime you have a policy initiative that's centered around large numbers of people losing their jobs. And also, it's hard to replace teachers with better teachers at mass scale, simply because there's so many teachers. So what he did was looked instead at textbooks. And I think textbooks is something that you know, most of us don't think that hard about, you know, you kind of figure, well, okay, a textbook could have wrong information in it, as I believe some of the textbooks of my youth did. But, you know, other than that, it's like one textbook is as terrible as the next. But they find that's actually not the case. And that if you control for sort of, uh, you know, standard variables, you can see that they looked particularly at fourth and fifth grade math textbooks, and that some textbooks were way better than others at helping kids learn. Which on the one level is like, well, duh, shouldn't some be better than others? But another level is like striking. Nobody has been studying this uh, at all. And they show that you know if you could get everybody to use one of the, the top 25% of, of textbooks, people would move up 3.6 percentile points uh, in the rankings, which is not like a night or day sort of change. But it's a pretty big change for something that would have literally no cost. At all.
2: And there's something in there, right, about that that was kind of equivalent to moving to a teacher who had taught longer. So I forget what like right. how many it, it, years. It, it's, but...
0: it's the difference between having a brand new teacher <laughs> and a teacher with three years yeah. of experience, at which he throws in there a little randomly, but the research on teacher experience mm-hmm. is that you get a lot better over your first 3 years mm-hmm. in the classroom and then it tends to like level off that you sort of figure out what you're doing and then like your 27th year in the classroom doesn't benefit you the most so what's the difference between having a rookie teacher and a like fully competent veteran teacher is between using an average math textbook and like a good math textbook i mean the difference being that like it would be really hard to replace every below average teacher with a top 25% teacher. Whereas it would be really, really easy to just order different textbooks. It's not like they charge more for the good textbooks and are deliberately saying, like, here's the discount teach you math wrong textbook, (laughs) right? There's no marketplace for that. I mean, textbooks are expensive, but they're equally expensive.
2: Although I wonder if that's true or not. Because one of the things I think about here is like equal access in education if you have like a lot of like the older textbooks in circulation are going to be the ones that are worse because like we knew less about learning. I don't know how old textbooks are in school right now, but I think you know if you have textbooks written in 2000 versus textbooks written in 2015, those older ones, I mean my hunch and maybe it's totally wrong, would be less good because we knew less about education because things have changed that you could almost I mean I could see this being kind of like an inequality issue, where, where you have some kids who are at good schools, where they research the textbooks and like they use the textbooks and they have like great textbooks, and then you have some kids at kind of terrible schools. I don't think this study got into it, but one of the questions I had coming out of it was like, well, where are the good textbooks and where are the bad textbooks, and how does that relate to um, socioeconomics? Yeah, populace. I mean,
0: that would be great to see. I mean, although one of the conclusions of, of the paper that's striking is just that there is no conscious research into mm-hmm. the question of, yeah. of which ones are good to spend It would be interesting to see how they're distributed. But it's like, it's not like right now, like the fanciest school districts are like using their awesome textbook model. And the, the poor ones are like stuck with, with the leftovers, just no one is doing it. And it's the kind of there's a limited federal role in education policy in the United States. But absolutely, the kind of thing the Federal Department of Education could do
1: is like just publish a study About textbooks? But this is why I thought this paper was actually so encouraging. Because textbooks, as you've mentioned, Matt, scale really well. And so we have a lot of foundation money being pumped into education reform right now. And one of the central questions is, okay, even if you can line up 20 teachers, which they often do and sort of, figure out how good they are at teaching their students, How do you scale what you've learned? Like how do you take the sort of things that are some of them are are clear and some of them are ineffable that make a good teacher and then use that to make a thousand, ten thousand, fifty thousand more good teachers? And the answer is kind of we have some suggestive avenues to go down there, but we don't really know. Conversely, if you can run a study on a hundred textbooks and you find the one of those textbooks it is the best, then the next step is incredibly clear. You just buy that fucking textbook for everybody. And you could even go further than that. You could have a big foundation like the Gates Foundation put a very large prize, right, a 5 or $10 million prize out for whoever could write the textbook that is the best textbook. And you could bring in a different class of textbook writers and maybe you could even pair them with extremely, extremely good ghost writers and have them work together and really put in tremendous effort into the visual components of the textbooks. And you could just increase the rewards to writing a fifth grade math textbook by orders of magnitude without it actually costing you all that much money. And then you could figure out which of these super expensive textbooks you've created work. And then you could just sell it at a very low price to everyone who wanted to buy it. And then you would... Be able to disseminate this in a really big way. So to me, this is as actionable a piece of research as I've ever seen in education uh, policy.
2: Although one hurdle, so I, I agree with you, it's definitely easier to like get textbooks in classrooms than teachers. I, I do think we might be kind of underestimating the friction around putting new textbooks in classrooms, where you probably have teachers who are like, they have a textbook, they know the textbook, and you probably actually have a bit of loss if you're, you, you know, switching if you're switching from a teacher who knows a textbook gets a better textbook, but one that he or she is less familiar with. There's probably like a little bit of education loss there. And there is like, you know, work on the part of the school to like implement a new curriculum, build out lessons around your new textbooks. So I think you're right. It is definitely easier than getting um, high quality teachers in classrooms. But I can also see why it might be a harder a harder thing to do than what we're describing here and why like even if if schools had this knowledge, they might say, well that's great but like I don't have the time to like teach my my teachers don't have the time to like learn these new um textbooks or so I think it's a it's a better solution but still like not you know
0: Right away, yeah. like,
2: you know, get these into all the American That's why we classrooms.
0: need that common core. Um, <laughs> no, but I mean, I do, to, to what, what Ezra said, I mean, Sarah, you're absolutely right. I mean, you know, this is the kind of thing where at first blush, you can be like, oh, my God, this would be so easy. We could just put these in the mail and like get it done. And actually, it's it's hard. On the other hand, you're seeing meaningful differences in a market where currently there is no incentive at all. To actually make your textbook be better, right? And it, it's striking me that in the like the corner of the the textbook world that I that I know more about, which is like freshman economics classes rather than uh, fifth grade math classes, it's like the big textbooks are written by Greg Mankiw, Paul Krugman. There's like a new rising one by by Tyler Cohen and Alex Tabarrok. And what these people all have in common is not deep engagement with the pedagogy literature, it's that they're all famous,
1: Uh right? (laughs) Because the way you market a textbook. They were less famous. I think some of these folks got famous after their textbooks were pretty big.
0: Uh, to an extent, but the Cohen and, and Tabarak, in, in some ways is yeah, the clearest sure. on this, right? People leveraging public intellectual status, which I think in case of all three of those those groups is like really well-deserved, but is based on doing public intellectually kind of stuff, and then leveraging that into
1: intro textbook authoring. See, I would actually take a little bit of the opposite view on that. I would say what those people have in common is they have proven themselves in different ways to be unusually, like, top 0.1% good communicators Explainers, right. Right? That's part of why they're a public intellectual. I mean, it's not – I think that's a little bit different than they're famous because they won a Nobel Prize and their work was really, really important. No, no, that's true. I I mean – Paul Krugman, like, is famous. He is a great economist and and so – and the same with Tyler Cohen, but – they're famous because it turned out they're super good at writing for people. Right.
0: No, so I, I mean, I shouldn't over It's not a crazy proxy, right, to say that, like, the guys who can write good newspaper columns could also probably write a good textbook. But it is still very different from checking which textbooks yeah. are working well and trying to say, OK, the way you're going to sell more textbooks in the future is to do a better Job with that. Because there is one important difference, and this is particularly true when you think about like math classes and stuff, is that most popularization content is aimed at people who are sort of interested in the subject. And there is a difference between what to someone who finds it inherently compelling is like a compelling explanation, dramatization of like the stuff. I hope people enjoy the, the Weeds podcast. But probably if you're bothering to check this out in the first place, you have like some interest in this, this kind of subject matter and are interested in hearing us talk about it, which is pretty different from a sort of like education basics kind of thing, where it's like, sorry, like, I don't care if you care about fifth grade math, you have to learn it. I think it would be much potentially much better to create a structure in which it's worthwhile for textbook companies to actually invest in some kind of validated study of like, what are people learning from this, rather than to invest in sort of signing up people who seem like the kind of people who would be good.
1: Yeah, I mean, the other thing I would say is the, the the one good thing to to your point about the operational friction here, Sarah, is that I totally think you're right that you couldn't do this quickly. But over X number of years, a very large percentage of like all textbooks get replaced. And I think that what this is pointing out is that there's a great point of leverage at that moment in the process, which is right now those replacement decisions are being made pretty blind, People look at textbooks. They test them out. They get samples of them. There's probably I, – I assume there's some amount of reviewing that goes on. You can say go on Amazon and look at reviews of a textbook. But we could by really investing in textbook creation and then investing in textbook validation give schools much, 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 much better – information and then foundations or the government, if they wanted, could take the top performing textbooks and also make them much cheaper. And so that over a course of 20 or thirty years you could really improve the the average quality of textbooks using a process that is going to happen whether or not there's reform of it or, or there isn't
2: yeah, I mean, in a weird way, you actually see something similar happening in contraceptives right now with the switch to much better contraceptives and the friction is arguably much greater there because for the most effective kind of, Larks, as we've talked about here, long-acting reversible contraceptives, those take a little bit more work and planning to be able to offer people. But with a lot of foundation support, with like a lot of evidence, with like, and it's taken about a decade to get off the ground. But now you see these like statewide experiments in Colorado, a big experiment in St. Louis, where they're kind of showing, hey, if you just like literally switch to a different kind of contraceptive, you can prevent, you know, half of your unplanned pregnancies. And then you see a kind of starting to snowball. And there the barriers are arguably greater because you're not just asking people to switch to a different kind of pill, you're asking people to switch to something that's actually a little harder to prescribe. But I think it, I think the thing that makes that work and the thing that would need to make this work is like building some kind of um, political constituency behind it. And like, you know, these Birkin, I don't know if it's these Brookings people or someone else who, you know, actually are like, hey, I found this thing, like we should build some good textbooks and kind of like turning the research into like an actual push to change things.
0: Well, and this is why I I do think it's unfortunate that we have never done a a full segment on this. But like one of the things that happened in the uh, No Child Left Behind rewrite that, that happened last year is that the federal government backed away a little bit from the idea of sanctioning schools that underperform. And, you know, they did that because people hadn't liked it, right? It had been a sort of bad experience, and there hadn't been a ton of evidence that it had really changed things. But I think another way of looking at it is that, well, you know, it it was hard for that to make a difference because schools didn't necessarily know, you know, like, how could they avoid the sanctions? Like, what what could they do? But I, I think you'll see something like that takes time, right? It turns out that in the same year that we're stepping away from sanctioning schools for underperformance, we're finding that one way an underperforming school could improve itself would be by being more careful about its textbook selection, right? And so, I I mean, I would say it would be good to try to keep up the heat you know on a sort of generic level on schools to do a good job or for the people working in them to face consequences because i think we've seen over that same sort of 10-year span that we are starting to develop best practices that schools could and and should be using and that you know we need to continue to make sure that all schools or sort of properly incentivized to do it, right? I feel like if Brookings comes out with some great papers on on textbooks, that will definitely make its way into the Arlington County School Board's hands, right, (laughs) over the years. And, you know, and it'll spread from Arlington County and Montgomery County to like Northern New Jersey and, you know, various other places where people are like really plugged in and and pay attention to these things. I question whether school officials in you know like in detroit they're like trying to keep the lights on in their schools like they've got big problems and also like a weak political structure supporting them things like that and they're just like not gonna have a meeting where it's like holy shit you know tom kane published this paper that says we're thinking about fourth grade math textbooks (laughs) Um, but like they more than other places like even though i i totally appreciate that they have like what seems like bigger fish to fry like those are the places that most need to like not mess up small, costless decisions, like next time we buy textbooks, let's get the good ones. And it's important to have some kind of national infrastructure that makes sure that that happens precisely in the places where they have like the, the weakest structures, because otherwise it's not going to happen. All right. Better textbooks. Okay. It's been another episode of The Weeds, Vox's policy podcast on the Panoply Network. Thanks to our, our sponsors, our producer, AC Valdez, and uh, to our, our co-hosts. I hope you will continue to rate and review us, recommend our show to your friends and to your enemies. Use the the magnificent advances in communications technology that exist to alert people all throughout the universe that they need to be listening to The Weeds.
1: And subscribe to The Ezra Klein Show if you have more time left in your podcast
0: life I'm skeptical about that one you might want to <laughs> use that time to do more work uh, raise, raise output see you next week